0: Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 122, The Problems with Polyamory.
1: Welcome. Hey, I am your host, Lori Krieg, and we're coming at you from Grand Rapids, Michigan. And it's Matt and I, and we have guests via Zoom because that's right. This is the first episode we're actually recording live and Matt and I are recording live. From the spooks is what we call it in our house. We have many stories in our house and so instead of calling it just like the downstairs, then we called it the down down downstairs. But our daughters were very scared of it so they called it the down down spooky stairs. Now it's just called The Spooks, which is where we're recording. So this is our first, uh, like, after the, the shelter in place uh, that we're recording. And so I'm hoping, maybe by the time you guys are hearing this, everything's all good and everything's back to normal, perhaps. But while we're recording this, we are down in The Spooks. But we are so excited to have back... Our only three-time returning guest, <laughs> Doctor Branson Parler. Branson, welcome back.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me back. Uh, it's good to be here. Uh, very unprecedented—that's the word, right? Unprecedented circumstances, yes. but uh, but here we are.
1: We're making it work. Are you in the ear spooks? Where are you? I
2: yeah, I'm up in uh, one of my one of my kids' rooms. I was trying to find um, this. Want, they may barge in at some point. I don't know if they'll hop on the audio, uh, but this this room had the best overall uh, setup. And so I thought I can drag my computer and microphone and other stuff in here and trying to make it work.
1: Yeah. Steve is head to toe hazmat suit back at the studio. So sorry about that, Steve.
0: <laughs> oh, that's OK. That's that's, that's fine. <laughs> nobody nobody else comes to the station now. So it's just me.
1: Just sneeze all over everything. That's right. It's fine. Uh, But guys, hey, if you you're like three time, I've never heard this guy. You're new to the podcast. Well, welcome and welcome to Hearing Branson. Um, But here's a little bit more about him. He received his Ph.D. from Calvin Theological Seminary. He's professor of theology at Kuiper College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Woot woot. And a pastor, author and speaker. I did the woot woot, not because I went there, but because I just like you guys. So there you go.
2: Thanks. We appreciate the (laughs) Um, shout out.
1: Yeah, you're Welcome. But he serves on the collaborative leadership team for the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, and as director of faith formation at Fourth Reformed Church in Grand Rapids, which also deserves a woot woot. We've done a Journey Well workshop with them, and they're just... Their hearts are amazing and minds and everything about them. We love them. Uh, But he's also helped me. He helped me hugely with our Impossible Marriage book. So just such a, a humble, intelligent brother. And we are so excited to dive in today, not with problems of the pandemic, although there are many. But we are going to really, you know, we're going to take we're going to take a step away. We're going to look away from the pandemic for a minute and look at polyamory, which really is an important conversation to have. Uh, And so we want some help specifically, Branson, what I'm looking for today is can you help us understand why it's not biblical you know if we have all these kings in the old testament who had many wives and god blessed them like crazy why i mean i don't know i don't know the arguments so we're gonna do that but first a very important question which is the question of the week from last week which is what's your favorite kitchen gadget very important these days because that's we got the kitchen we got the spooks you got your kids bedrooms and hazmat suits so branson (laughs) tell us what's your favorite kitchen gadget?
2: Yeah. You know, that's, that's a good question. Um, I think, I mean, does coffee maker count that I was thinking, whatever, whatever, whatever makes me coffee and that, (laughs) you know, your standard coffee pot, uh, you know, French press, something else, whatever gets me coffee, uh, I think is, is, is good. Uh, although my wife, Sarah, when she heard this was a question, she got really excited too, because she's all about, kitchen gadgets uh she's great in the kitchen uh and so you know if it's something that is super handy it's small it doesn't take up a Uh. lot of space but it saves you time and is you know that's the kind of thing that um yeah that's that's primo you know birthday gift christmas gift whatever something like that
1: your wife and my husband are best friends. Because that is exactly Matt. I'm like, give me a knife and some duct tape and we're good. And Matt's like, the most intricate gadget that I can buy or someone can give me. But let me have him speak for himself, Matt, (laughs) who is here as we're a little bit uh, crossing our fingers that our own children don't walk in at any moment because we can't get babysitters. This is quarantine life, Matt. What's your favorite kitchen gadget and which listener were you like? Yeah.
3: Yeah, this one was hard for me because I do like a kitchen gadget as long as it's useful. And I, I think, okay, it was easy to pick the listener. So I'm going to give a shout out to Rockhold Adolf on Instagram. Um, they said Nespresso. So Branson, you would probably like that one as well. I, I just know that the Nespresso makes my wife happy. And so that's a, that's a good gadget to have. At 3 p.m. At 3 p.m. or 3 a.m. It doesn't matter. What? As long as you can get some good coffee to you, you're usually okay. Um, but for me personally, I, I, I mean, there's the, the normal, like, really useful things like the KitchenAid and all that kind of stuff, the stand mixer. Um, but I'm going to go a little off the wall, and it's just something that I have a real pet peeve about that, Lori, you know, and it's the cheese slicer. <laughs> if we're slicing... <laughs> cheese off of the chunk the block of cheese you'll take a knife out and just hack away at it i'm like we have this perfectly good thing that is crafted to remove cheese from a block and you don't use it and i use it like exclusively
1: i did that the other day i just chopped into it and i i just felt him die a little bit sorry
0: yeah (laughs) it's all right steve uh yeah i really liked this comment
1: Hello, my name
2: is Annie, I'm from Illinois, and my favorite kitchen gadget is my handheld milk frother. I use it to make boring coffee from my coffee maker more exciting, so I can make lattes or cappuccinos all at home.
0: So there's kind of a theme there of coffee. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, the coffee maker's like one of the few things in the kitchen I actually know how to use. So, other than, you know, like the fridge. Um, <laughs> So those is that a gadget? The, I I I think the fridge counts as a gadget. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's the place I where like I it. find the food that my wife has made, and you know, then I can access it.
1: <laughs> I liked this from Terry. Hey everyone, I'm Terry Kincaid Thomas from Cumberland, Maryland. So Chef Philip is my favorite kitchen gadget. He's my husband. My role in the kitchen is to sit on the floor, drink a glass of wine, and watch him
0: cook. By the way, his favorite kitchen gadget is our pampered chef garlic press. I thought sure he'd say the espresso maker. Thanks, Laurie, Matt, and Steve.
1: I mean, (laughs) she she got it made.
3: (laughs) Sounds like a pretty good life.
1: For her, right? Um, Matt is, I don't want to call you a gadget, but I understand what she's saying, but I have realized, especially in this quarantine life more and more, Matt's like, I don't eat if I don't cook <laughs> So for Matt. Um, I do bake though. So I, as much as I'm like a knife and duct tape, I love my KitchenAid stand mixer. And it's actually from Matt's mom who passed away a couple of years ago. And so there's some nostalgia to it. Um, but I love baking. So I give everyone cookies. And what do you mean, Matt gained forty-five pounds since we got married because of the cookies, which you would say often. I, I, I tried do. Out I
3: you. do say that you're not outing me. This is a well-known fact. <laughs> I'm not closeted about my love for cookies.
1: <laughs> Good joke, Matt. Okay, Branson Parlor. We've asked you this now twice, but let's let's dive into this gospel question, because that's the purpose of this podcast is to talk about how the gospel is good news for everyone every day, including in that pandemic life. So lately, Branson, how has the gospel been good news for you?
2: Yeah, that's as I've thought about this question, you know, it's, it's really hit me just in the the last couple of weeks and um, probably because we're watching a couple different kind of like uh, like jesus movies or rendition there's a new i, I think app that's out we kind of started to watch it and um and maybe because we don't expose our kids to a lot on tv i mean there, but there were there were some intense parts uh, you know with a woman who was demon possessed uh there were you know we watched kind of the older jesus movie and so it's not gratuitous but it's like jesus is getting crucified and tortured like this is this is hard to watch. And it, it, it struck me that, um, you know, seeing how my, my kids were almost kind of scared by engaging this. Uh, it just, it it struck home to me how much, if you actually read the gospel stories, how much of this is pretty scary stuff. Like we're, I mean, really from beginning to end, you're talking about things like um, King Herod murdering a whole bunch of babies. You are talking about people who are demon possessed Uh, You're talking about Jesus, I mean, again, thinking about this in our time, Jesus walking up to and engaging with people who were um, physically sick and even contagious, Uh, and you're talking about Jesus having some really difficult um, conversations with religious leaders, with with people who are in a position of power. Uh, This is is not easy stuff. Uh, And it just reminded me that you know part of i think what hits me about the gospel is that um jesus wades into the scary stuff with us uh mm-hmm. that this is not you know sometimes the jesus of like sunday school or flannel graph or whatever is like family friendly jesus or whatever jesus wades into really scary stuff uh and uh ends up actually himself causing people to be scared a lot of times. They're like, what's going on? You know, he stops the wind and waves and his disciples are afraid of him. He heals this man who's possessed by Legion and people are like get away from us. And so, I mean, that's just hit home for me over the last few weeks to see uh, fear at kind of all, on all kinds of different fronts, you know, fear of disease, fear of what does this mean for my job, fear of what does this mean for our culture and society um, we need a Jesus who is right in the middle of scary stuff. And, and we need to be communicating that to ourselves, to our kids, um, really, I think, from the beginning. And so that, especially these last couple of weeks, that's really what has hit home to me about the gospel.
1: That is so good. Yep. If we ever needed Jesus, it's now. Like we always did, but it just seems so, I don't want to say relevant, it's just like vital, in which he always has been, but man. Okay. So it feels like a sharp turn, but I'm trusting the Holy Spirit that he lined up this um, conversation and he knows like, Lord willing, things are going to somewhat go back to normal at some point, And people are going to keep doing what people do. And and who knows, like maybe after this, it's going to, I don't know, maybe people are going to be so desperate for connection. Like who knows if polyamory is going to be a thing or I don't know what this is doing to marriages it's not great for china you know they're seeing an uptick in divorce etc like divorce lawyers getting reached out to at 25 50 so i don't see this pandemic for people who aren't rooted in christ every day doing good things so who who knows how this may play out in the coming Mm -hmm. days specifically with polyamory but for those who are listening and maybe they've heard that word what's that mean And how is it different from like something like pan gender and pansexual?
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. And maybe I can just give a little bit of the backup to kind of my own, how I got connected with this discussion. Um,
1: That's a great thought. So people aren't just like, why is this dude talking about this? That's great. Well, I mean, a couple
2: of different avenues. You know, I've been part of, I've done a lot of research and writing on human sexuality, on marriage in general. It's something that I teach about in my classes at Kuyper College, um, teaching biblical interpretation, teaching classes on this. And About a year and a half, two years ago, Preston Sprinkle uh, approached me and asked me if I would uh, really dig into this topic to write a pastoral paper for uh, the Center, the Center for Faith, uh, Sexuality, and Gender uh, and so you know, it was a topic that was kind of on my radar uh, but that i hadn't really uh, dug into in a big way and so i started doing that i guess it's been almost two years now um, and so that that was really helpful for me uh, because i think uh, with this discussion what i what i find is a lot of people aren't really clear on what does this mean um what what does this look like so so that's kind of how I got engaged in this. And, and I heard more and more of my own college students saying, oh, yeah, my my friends, you know, from high school, this is kind of a relationship option that they're exploring. Um, you know, it's, it's not something that is that's somehow unheard of. Uh, and so when we think about polyamory, really, it is uh, a relationship, romantic sexual relationship of three or more people. Uh, and it's important to understand that Again, what I started to learn as I dug into it is that really there are a variety of different ways that these relationships can, can form and shape. It can be three, four, five people. Uh, it can be relationships uh, like a triad, which is a relationship between three people, and all of them have romantic and sexual relationships with one another. It could be uh, what's called a V relationship where it's three people, but one of them has a romantic and sexual relationship with the other two but those other two you know they have a relationship with each other but it's it may not be sexual or romantic in the same way uh and so uh it, it takes a variety of shapes uh, now when you think about you asked how is it different from pan gender or pansexual you know when you look at people who are exploring polyamorous relationships uh you know it can be people who uh, identify really all over the spectrum in terms of their sexual orientation or gender. And so we're, you know, when you talk about polyamory, it's not uh, somehow exclusive to uh, people who might be, let's say gender nonconforming or something of that nature. Uh, And so really polyamory has to do with um, this relational structure that can have people identifying from all different places, uh, Uh, in terms of their orientation or their gender identity, uh, but have chosen to uh, live out their sexuality and live out their identity uh, in this more complicated relationship, you might say.
1: So, okay, knee-jerk reaction, which I recognize is judgmental and probably sinful from me, but like my knee-jerk reaction is, this sounds like people who want to have multiple partners and isn't that kind of like everyone like it just kind of seems like kind of legalizing like adultery or like i I, honestly that's just how it sounds is like yeah of course you don't want to be faithful because that's called being a human but you're gonna like put rules on it do you know what i'm saying
2: yeah 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 and there is you know Again, as with anything, there's a whole range of practice, uh, but one of the things that was interesting to me as I started to, uh, explore this more, uh, is to hear how polyamorous people, especially those who are, let's say more thoughtful about that yeah. relationship structure uh, are really focused on, on, um, ethics of honesty of mutuality of openness. Uh, and so, um, and so a key part of, you know, some of, they would argue in a lot of ways, polyamory allows for more openness, more honesty than a lot of our monogamous relationships that are trying to be monogamous, but not really. And we're maybe trying to hide certain things from our spouses or partners. Uh, and so that was eye opening to me because I yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people when you hear this or you see people engaging it, it's just like this is this is gross or this is weird. This is just people who want to sleep around. Uh, and again, to try to understand polyamorous people on their own terms, uh, I started to hear something a, a little bit different. Again, like I said, as with all relationships, there's a huge Spectrum of how people practice it or what that looks like in in reality, uh, but I would say sort of the best advocates from that perspective. That that's what that's what they would argue.
1: Okay, and then also another clarifying question. And then I want to get into how prevalent is this? So you said when people are exploring polyamorous relationships, so they wouldn't say I was born this way, or would they? This is a choosing.
2: Yeah. Well, there there are some. Uh, Who would say that? And so I think, um, in fact, there was actually an article in a peer reviewed law journal, probably about four or five years ago, uh, where the author actually argued that polyamory should be classified as a sexual orientation. Mm. Uh, Now, again, I would say, based on the research that I did, I think certainly a minority of polyamorous people would say, I was just born this way. But there are some who essentially would say, you know, I've never really experienced jealousy. I wanted, you know, my partner to have another partner or I thought it was great. Like it actually uh, expanded my joy when the relationship expanded. Uh, And and so there are some who would say essentially that um, uh, that they're born that way. Again, it's Mm. definitely a minority, but uh, some would say that.
1: Okay, so guys, if you're listening and you're like me and you're, you know, you're wrestling through this and your knee-jerk reaction and Branson, like your knee-jerk reaction, like, you know, that we're trying to fight those. If you hear Branson and I trying to really understand their perspective, that's because that's a good thing to do to understand someone's why, their most honest why, and their true heart as they're putting this argument forward so that we aren't just trying to adjust behavior, That's, that's the whole purpose of this podcast is so huge. It's about the heart. It's about the gospel. And so that we don't just say, well, just don't, we have to understand really just, okay, well, what, what is this? What are you, what are you talking about? And why are you talking about this? And then we can ask the Holy spirit to help us understand the heart behind it so that we speak heart to heart. Because our goal as disciple makers is not to make little Pharisees, but little Christs. So guys, just so if you hear that and you're like, what are they, why are they asking this? That's why.
2: Yeah, and and if I could, you know, I, I think what you just said is so important to understanding this, um, because you know, Preston Sprinkle and I wrote an article on polyamory a little while back for Christianity Today, and uh, different folks kind of voiced some concerns and questions about that, and and I think, you know, especially like how you guys, it almost sounds like you're being charitable, or are you know, you're not really. Kind of pounding the pulpit like sin is sin is sin. This is just wrong. We just need to let we need to make sure people know this is wrong. Um, and I think you know, part of the reason I was taken aback a little bit by that is because a you know, we clearly said this is wrong, but I, I think it may have to do with the difference of posture. I, I would say my posture going into this is really, I would almost see it like a, a missiologist trying to understand here's a people group that you're trying to reach, you're trying to connect with. Uh, if You know, I I think we'd say, at least I would say, if somebody's like, Yeah, I want to be a missionary, you know, overseas, and I'm going to go over there, and the first thing I'm going to do is make sure I tell them sin is sin is sin, like this is wrong. um, I would say that's actually not very effective, and it doesn't communicate the gospel, uh, I think, well. And so, if we're going to actually communicate the gospel, we have to understand where people are coming from, how they would describe themselves, how they would understand themselves not saying that that's the final word about them, because I think you you find that in the gospel as well. Uh, But if, you know, if I'm thinking about how do I help pastors, how do I help people relate to their, their friends or coworkers who are polyamorous? um, They probably don't just need to be told, well, you guys all know polyamory is sin, right? I I think they need more to be able to be equipped to communicate and to interact well.
1: We really do. And uh, Lord willing, we're going to land the plane on how to speak to that heart to heart level. But let's let's talk about this, Branson. Are we talking about one percent of the population, like 0.5? Like how how many people are actually in polyamorous relationships?
2: Yeah. So there you know, there are a few different stats. Um, one estimate actually uh, puts it at uh, about as, as many as five percent of Americans are currently in relationships uh, involving Consensual non-monogamy, and so that's actually about the same percentage as those who identify as as LGBTQ Um, plus. There was another recent study in a peer-reviewed journal, and it found that twenty percent of Americans have been in a consensual non-monogamous relationship at some point in their life. Twenty percent, one one in five. Um, And in a in a recent book, the sociologist Mark Regnerus notes that. Uh, roughly twenty-four percent of church-going people think that consensual, non-monogamous or polyamorous relationships are are morally okay. And so, what? you know what? Yeah, uh, I was what? scratch my head at that uh, too. But I think, um, I think it shows the degree to which you know our culture as a whole has an ethic rooted in mutuality and individual freedom and so if this is something that you see as life-giving and helpful for you then who am i to really contest that uh and i think to me that you know especially to hear that that percentage of church-going people kind of look at it and almost shrug their shoulders i mean i think just proves the point that you know i think russell moore said it that that you know, the sexual revolution hits the church just at a slower rate, uh, than the broader culture that's still there.
0: But
1: what kind of church going people like, is that, are we thinking Christian evangelical? Is this again, forgive me, but like, is this like the Mormon church? Is this like, how can you define church going?
2: Yeah. My understanding, the, the way he defines it in there, uh, it, you know, if I recall, it's, it's, I mean, it has to do more with, um, you know, percentage of times that somebody attends church. That's kind of how he defines church going. Uh, and so it's it's not just around, um, you know, kind of church beliefs or how strict your theology is. My guess is uh, that, again, if you surveyed churches that are more uh, orthodox theologically, you would find that number go down a bit. Uh, but that was okay. kind of a broad sweeping.
1: Of all churches, all religions, even. It's just like the church.
2: Yeah, I'd have to double check on that. I want to go back and okay. see exactly how he defines churchgoer. Okay, but it's but part of his point was just that even people who you know call, think of themselves as religious call themselves religious. This is still something that they seem like they're mostly okay with. One in four are mostly okay with it.
1: So that's bananas, but not so much if you know these are the arguments that you hear as far as like, well, okay, read the Old Testament. And honestly, legit, Branson, I need your help here. <laughs> like, I don't know if someone was like, well, look at King David. Like, I think I could probably stumble my way to an answer. But can you help us? Like, King David had a bunch of wives. Solomon, which, I mean, they we know they led him astray. But like, you know, even you think it Abraham and, you know, I don't need to list them for you. Old Testament, lots of wives. God still blessed them and didn't, like, smote them because of their wives. Help us fight Not fight people. Help us know the argument so that we can engage that argument.
2: Yeah, that's, I I think that's really crucial because, uh, especially around this discussion, you know, part of what's interesting to me is uh, I've had a lot of discussions with people around uh, thinking through same sex marriage, same sex relationships. uh, And in some ways, I would say biblically, the case for polyamory is almost more straightforward, if you want to say it that way, because this is what I hear. I mean, it is common for even again, some Christians who might try to defend polyamory to say, look, we do have all these examples of people who are central characters. They're, they're not just um, um, kind of bit figures on the side. uh, But these are, these are people who are really involved in the central story. And so I think and not, and you have Old Testament examples. You even have uh, some different Old Testament laws that seem to regulate uh, polygamy. Which again, uh, maybe this might be a helpful po- time just to briefly distinguish polygamy and polyamory. Um, yeah. It, usually, polygamy, uh, the vast majority of culture, you have one husband and multiple wives. Uh, but typically, it's you know the husband has a relationship with each wife. Uh, polyamory, things are much more fluid. Uh, in terms of being defined by uh, different people having different relationships with each other uh, in a variety of ways, and the fact that it's not um, it's not marriage. Uh, typically, that's part of the relationship is that oftentimes it is not a um, you know, lifelong commitment. It is a, I'm committing to you at this time, and that's our understanding of the relationship. So I just wanted to put that out there as well mm. so we'd have that, that distinction there um but what so i I think it's crucial to note um a couple of different points here one is that uh just because uh somebody in the bible does something even a very good person or even somebody who might be held up as an example uh doesn't mean that everything they do is good Uh, and i think that's pretty clear you start to read through scripture just because um you know the life of david is a is a good example you know here's somebody who uh is often held up as a good example, but you see from his own life that he's ambiguous. He has many good qualities, he follows God, but he also has some pretty deep sins. And so just because David or Abraham did something doesn't necessarily make it right. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think the key to understanding what the Bible teaches about monogamy is really rooted in understanding the biblical story, uh, which goes from creation to new creation, uh, and so part of what you see in Genesis one and two, in the beginning, uh, when God is before sin enters the picture, God sets up marriage, and uh, it's the the language in Genesis is uh, very clear uh, that this is one man, this is one woman, uh, that there is this union uh, that is uh, meant to be this this one flesh union. Uh, it's lifelong. It's exclusive. Uh, the, the trajectory of Scripture, then, when, when Jesus comes back on the scene in Matthew 19, um, people ask him this question of, about marriage and about divorce. Uh, and what's interesting to me is Jesus does not go back to uh, the Old Testament law. He doesn't go back to Old Testament examples. Uh, he goes all the way back to Genesis two and creation and God's intention uh, that God's intention in creation uh, is one man, one woman, and these two. Uh, the, the text of Matthew is very explicit. These two uh, become one flesh, and so part of what part of what's happening here, I think, is that. Um, we need to understand that the Bible is this unfolding story of redemption that reveals to us uh, who God is. And so what I often see in discussions about sexuality and marriage uh, is people will dip into specific texts, which are important, but not necessarily see the whole big picture. Uh, And so part of what Jesus is saying in Matthew 19, even about divorce is that there were some provisions that, that um, God allowed for in the law uh, that in some ways Jesus is actually saying, now that I am here, uh, I am upping the ante, so to speak, in terms of what I require of you. Uh, and so Jesus says, you can't get a divorce for any reason except for uh, essentially sexual immorality. And his disciples, their response is, that's really hard. <laughs> you know, like, that's impossible. Like, if that's the case, nobody should get married. Uh, and so what I think we have to see here is that monogamy is not just this high ethical ideal. Jesus says monogamy, this, this exclusive, faithful, lifelong relationship uh, between a husband and wife, uh, is this new creation reality that points to God's faithful covenant love for us uh and so so if somebody were to say to me well look you know that this was allowed in the old testament you know why can't we allow for that today um i I would say that it's because of confusion about let me put it this way it's confusion about what time it is uh Hmm. jesus has come the new creation has been inaugurated and so i think there's a sense in which you see um, God allowing, I, mean, I think this is clear in the Old Testament law, God regulates and allows actually a number of things that are a less than ideal reality. But when Jesus comes, when the Spirit is poured out, uh, you see this new creation reality that connects up with uh, God's original intention uh, in creation. So yeah, I'll stop there because I could keep going, but I'm I'm just curious thoughts or or, or mm-hmm. pushback or questions based on what I've said there.
1: Yeah, I love that. Um, and what's encouraging to me is some of my arguments for God's design for marriage between a man and a woman. I can just like highlight because I always go Matthew, you know, 19, and then I jump back to Genesis, and I'm like the the when Jesus says then the two shall become one flesh, which two? The two, it's, he bumps it back up from Genesis 127 earlier when he's talking in Matthew 19, the male and female. So the only two, the only one-flesh union, which is what we call marriage, it has to be between a man and a woman. But I love how you emphasize, just, Laurie, when you're, you know, just talking about this argument, not only emphasize that the two, male and female, equal one flesh, it's two. It's just two. So to num- emphasize both the number... And the two, I guess one question I would have, because, you know, Branson, you help me with this a lot in our impossible marriage book is you know, my favorite arguments for God's design for marriage are always what you just said, Matthew 19, connected Genesis. But then two, the metaphor, Ephesians five, as far as like you know, the, the sex difference between men and women isn't a cosmic joke. It's cosmic design. It's supposed to metaphor the ontological difference between humanity and divinity. How different can you be? It's not cosmic design, it's not a joke. It's cosmic design. But I guess, you know, now in my head, as you were talking, I was just replaying how many times God says throughout the Bible, you should have no other gods before me. I'm a jealous God, like how he is one like, so how can the metaphor hold up as an argument as well? Like how he wants us to be one body and that he is one, like, does that help?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, I think that's huge because I think Ephesians five is, is also crucial because what i what you see all throughout scripture is this, um, you know, God focuses on uh, the fact that he is in this covenant relationship with his people and he is showing his love to them in, in this um, exclusive way. And he calls for them to respond in this exclusive way as well. And so if you read the prophets, again, I mean, you you know this well, over and over, uh, the, the notion of having other gods is like ha- the, parallel to having other lovers. Uh, and so this is just, I mean, it is so woven into the fabric of scripture. Yeah, uh, and so and, and so then what you see, I think, with with Ephesians five, then part of what again just makes this so clear is that Jesus uh, is our covenant husband. We are His covenant wife as the church, and and so our our marriages. Uh, now, my marriage with with my wife is meant to uh, be this powerful metaphor our exclusive faithful covenant with one another is meant to show uh, Jesus's exclusive relation relationship covenant with us as the church. And so again, this is where I think, you know, you're you're right on. If if you think marriage is a metaphor points to a grand design that has these layers to it that points to who God is, then I think the biblical logic around monogamy and what that all means and even why that gets ratcheted up. Jesus is like, I'm here. And now if you, if you were to live in this non-monogamous way, you are in effect lying about who God is. You're lying about who Jesus is in the way that you are imaging or metaphoring that reality.
1: Okay, maybe this is a stupid question, but I got to imagine I'm not the first person to ask it. Okay, what about people who are like, well, God's three in one, so that's Polly, and we were the church in one, so that, I don't, you know, and I'm using this joking voice, but like, maybe they'll be like, I mean, hello, like that's, maybe it's obvious to them. So how, how would you, because I love the metaphor, you know, I'm obsessed with it, but like, what if they're like, well, God's three in one, hello, and the church body, how would you argue that?
2: Yeah. I mean, th- there are a couple of things there. And, and by, and I don't know if you know this, we haven't chatted about this, but there are a couple of people who do make that argument in all, in all seriousness who say like, okay, the Trinity is polyamorous. Um, uh, and so, so I, th- I think there are a couple of, yeah, there are a couple things going on there. Um, one of the things that I think for starters, it just doesn't, it doesn't work with Trinitarian language. So if you were to use some kind of relational language, you already have um, this familial language of father and son to describe two of the three members of the Trinity. Uh, Mm. And of course that relationship is not identical, but analogous to a human father son relationship. Um, But, and so that's where I think scripture never uses um, marriage or monogamy to try to describe, uh, the relationship of father, son, and spirit, right? So you do get this Ephesians five is talking about the relationship of Christ and the church, not the relationship of of father and son. And so uh, I I think we have to be really careful there to me that it kind of quickly gets into this. Yeah. Speculative, uh, kind of discussion that goes way beyond the, the, the language of scripture. And I think, you know, one of my other responses is, I think that saying something like that, well, this is polyamorous. Why wouldn't, to me, it would make as much probably more sense to talk about actually the deepest form of love that Jesus talks about in John 15, which is friendship which is this, you know, I am your friends, you are friends of one another. You, know, you get into John 17 yeah. and the oneness there, the, the church with one another. Uh, and that is a level of relationship and intimacy uh, that is, again, that's from Jesus's perspective, that's that's it, that's the apex of it. That's the, that's the highest form of uh, when you're thinking about what that relationship looks like. And so I think in some ways wanting to, kind of make the Trinity fit into polyamorous categories it, it almost uh, falls into the same pattern we see a lot of people you know again across all, all churches of kind of privileging marriage over singleness privileging marriage over friendship uh, whereas I would say you know that you can talk about intimacy you can talk about the depth of their relationship there um, but to try to make it uh, polyamory is just a, a big stretch.
1: Okay. Yeah. I've, I've learned the hard way from trying to at all add Trinitarian language at all into the marriage metaphor. You're just tiptoeing into some too deep waters theologically. And so it's, it is a stretch. So we'll just, we'll pause that piece, but just know that there, there are answers that abound and we can dive into it if we need to. But I think, thank you for these first steps as far as Matthew 19. And, um, Engaging this whole, the, the arc plot, the purpose of marriage. And I think that always recenters me is it's not, you know, do you love them? Like that's not, that's always where people always come to with same sex conversations and possibly even with this one. It's, I love them. That's not the question. I'm sure you do. The question is what is marriage biblically? That's the question that we need to be asking. And then that's what we need to submit ourselves to. And even as you said, the disciples said, this is hard. So even though they may love this person or not love their spouse at that time, it is hard. And that's kind of the point. So yeah. can you help us, Branson? So, all right, let's say after this quarantine's over and we actually can like see other humans, or maybe they're hearing it now. I know, I miss people. I like seeing your face, at least on Zoom. Um you know we can we can see each other but let's say let's let's talk to pastors cuz that's what you are you know you you do the pastor world and you're a professor but you know all right people's let's it's probably people you just start hearing it in your congregation okay there's this person's polyamorous or maybe this it's a family member at this point whose daughter's poly etc how are you going to how would you speak to the pastors like how do they need to engage this conversation
2: yeah, so I would say, I mean, as to to start with listening, to start with understanding, to try to understand again, what what do people mean by that? If they say that they're polyamorous, what does that look like to them, uh, and and how do they, um, yeah, how do they process that? I think it's also helpful uh, to ask. And again, this is kind of this way of saying it is what got us into a little bit of trouble. But I I think I think it's valid to ask. Um, what is it that's drawing people to polyamory? I think you see uh, people who uh, in different ways recognize uh, even the insufficiency of one other person. Like, okay, one other person is going to, there might be all and end all and I don't need anybody else. Again, um, quarantine is making us all shelter in place. (laughs) We realize like we all need other people. And so, you know, those are some of the things when, when I listen to what polyamorous people talk about, it is things like deep relationships. It's things like hospitality, uh, community. Again, I think it's something we see more and more in our culture. Is just people's living situations, whether they're polyamorous or not. People have all kinds of very fluid living situations, and I think because we have often said the only possible living situation is a single person by themselves, or you know the nuclear family of mom and dad and two point four kids, that at least for some people, polyamory just means it, it opens up this possibility of community and connection. And so I would say, listen for those things. Uh, because again, w- when we think about calling people to uh, repentance, we want to be very clear about what is sinful and what isn't. And so mm-hmm. to, to realize that if we are calling people to uh, repent of relationships, of, of sexual relationships that are not in line with God's intentions, that we are also able to say, but there that we as the church in some ways need to recapture what does deep relationship look like? What is community? What is hospitality? What is alternative forms of housing and living? Uh some of those things look like. And so that's why I think it's really important that pastors listen to understand Exactly what uh, relationship or context somebody's talking about if if they do come at it uh, from that perspective.
1: I can I can feel listeners like anxiety and anger just like ratcheting up (laughs) because they're 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 like what the heck, Branson and Lori? Oh my goodness! Like this is sin. It's sin. It's sin. It's sin. It's sin guys, I know, I hear you. And and there may be a couple things going on in our own hearts is we've wrestled with not wanting to be monogamous, whether it be pornography, whether it be a second look at someone that we know that's not our spouse or we're called to singleness and we knew where we're supposed to look at that. And so we've been trying to like chill and confess and repent that piece of us but guys it's not just a cut the hand off sin thing like there's a heart thing behind it for you is you long for you long to be desired and to be seen these core needs we always talk about you're longing for that so here's fellow image bearers we're trying to humanize fellow image bearers because guys are you, we cannot go up to fellow image bearers and blast them about their sin, even though to you it's so obvious, because when do you, dear ones, want to be blasted about your sin? Probably literally never, <laughs> but like even this quarantine, if you are married and you're listening or, or if you're, okay, not married and you have roommates, when do you want your roommates or your spouse to confront you about very personal things to you? When do you want them to confront you about that? Like literally if you had a bad morning conversation and they talk to you about your stinky socks at night and you haven't been connecting throughout the day, stinky socks convo can go bad. So Branson is saying really good, valuable things about humanizing people because we need to love fellow image bearers and humanize them. So understanding heart to heart is going to help us to be able to help (laughs) connect heart to heart to the Lord, which is the real empowerment to say no to sin. And then maybe at some point when you earn the relational currency to be able to say something about X, Y, Z sin. However, I do know, Branson, that pastor's Y'all have to have some laws, you know, it's not, you know, I'm talking about this discipleship right now. And so are you. But, you know, shoot, we've been telling pastors, you got to have, you know, same sex marriage. Like that has to be in your laws and now gender. And now do they need to add poly? Like, does that need to be a part of their covenant, et cetera?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's not necessarily a bad idea because I think it's only something that you're going to see people in the broader culture embrace more and more. And so I think it has to be crystal clear that when we talk about marriage, that again, to me, it goes back to understanding that uh, monogamy is rooted in who Jesus is. It's rooted in properly imaging or properly, you know, putting the metaphor there for people to see Uh, And so this is an area, again, I've been talking about trying to understand people. I want to be really clear too. This is an area where I think scripture is crystal clear, where we have to, if we are going to call people to faithfully follow Jesus, uh, it has to be uh, either a life of celibacy or a life of faithful monogamous marriage. And that really, those are the two options to put Jesus on display to the world. And so uh, that is going to mean some tough conversations, I think, uh, helping folks understand what that means. And again, I, I can't emphasize enough. I think, um, I think some people don't recognize the extent to which this is, this is already out there. This is already just part of the accepted norm in our culture that, that, people aren't going to really blink an eye at it. Uh, and so I think, again, we have to be teaching what scripture is and and we have to be really clear on, uh, understanding how, uh, monogamy is connected to, uh, this overarching story of scripture, because what we don't want to do is say you need to abandon polyamory for monogamy. We first need to say, as you've said, you need to understand Jesus and who Jesus is, we can't hold up monogamy as the answer, uh, any more than you can hold up uh in in my opinion you know let's just if we could just change somebody's orientation or if you could go from single to married or married to single or yeah we look for all those solutions rather than Jesus and so i think we need to come back again to the heart of the gospel
1: and it's okay to we've said this a trillion times on this on this show is your mad is offering often covering either fear or sadness so Dear ones, it's okay. Get underneath your rage, even though you're like, no, it's all righteous rage. Is it? I'm just saying, try and go to sad because and grieving. It's okay to grieve and say, God, this world is so jacked up. He, jesus lamented he grieved he probably i don't know does he still grieve in heaven i don't know anyway he grieved when he was here and so it's okay if we are grieving too that this world is broken and we you and i are equally broken guys we equally nailed jesus to the cross and so our people who are wrestling with this uh branson you you said that really well as far as this is already prevalent It's everywhere. Everyone I talk to now, it's like, oh, yeah, my friend, my sister, my whomever. Oh, yeah, they're poly. Or they're exploring that. Can you – let's just – let's talk to the young folk – I'm 100 – who, you know, maybe are 20-somethings listening or 30-somethings, and their friends are coming out to them right now. like, yeah, you know, poly, what words do we say? How do we engage? Is it different?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it (laughs) – uh, it, it, that, that part of the focus, again, has to be on helping people get a positive vision of what scripture teaches about marriage and sexuality, that if it's just, it can't just be anti-poly uh,
0: mm. and it
2: can't be, this is the other thing too, I think we don't always realize, again, the Old and New Testament are not written into cultures where faithful, exclusive, lifelong monogamy are normal. In other words, like we think monogamy. Well, everybody's just monogamous. That's the baseline. You know, everybody should just know that. This actually gives us a chance to go back and say, "Let me explain what why why the Bible teaches monogamy, which may actually be very different from why, you know, average Joe defender of monogamy who may not even be a Christian out there in our culture would would hold it up." So this is why I think we have to introduce people. Introducing people to Jesus goes hand in hand with understanding why monogamy uh, carries the biblical weight, uh, that it does, that, that those two things go together.
1: And I think that's, that's clutch as the kids say, (laughs) I am 100. Uh, but that is critical. Um, because people be like, Oh man, you know, like we, we want to still be friends with our friends and do that. But they're like, does this really matter that much? It matters if you start tracing it back to the, the the headwaters, is you're like, if they're saying whatever wishy-washy here, I'm guessing back X years ago, they just kind of threw the whole Bible out, I don't know, pieces of it. And then may- at some point you're going to hear, well, maybe you'll hear a story of suffering. And that's actually where you dear friends can lean in, is they prayed, to, they cried out to God and God didn't heal person, or they ask for help in this area, and that's where you can speak Christ crucified and resurrected is right in that pain. So I, I would let I'd emphasize way less the behavior, poly stuff, or whatever they're they're doing. I would try and 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 go back the up the river to where when when do you when did Jesus fail you? When do you you know when did you feel he failed you? But <laughs> when let's talk about that and let's the the times now guys people are starving they're starving for jesus and the real the real deal and they're looking for him everywhere including in polyamorous relationships and so let's give the real deal let's know it in our own lives so that what we're saying isn't a big sham uh so that's that's where we're practicing now is we're all going through the same collective suffering at different levels um but let's introduce our friends to them to him at these places of suffering.
2: Yeah. I, I And I think if I could, what you said is, is crucial because what I think our culture does not believe is that anybody is really ever faithful. Mm. And I think that's <laughs> why you see people just, dis- you know, who tells the truth, who can you really believe ever uh, that that's true of, and I think people see that in relationships. They've seen their parents' marriage go under and so it's like well what why even go down that route the only solution to that is to stop looking at faithless people and start looking at the faithful savior only that and i think that's jesus's point in matthew 19 ephesians 5 only looking at our faithful savior will give us the ability to truly be faithful to another person
1: get it branson All right. Well, you guys see why he's the only three-timer on this podcast, and we'll probably bring him back again.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's Um, good to be here.
1: Yeah, we're so, uh, so thankful. And guys, we're going to link up to his site. He's written some really beautiful and brilliant things, including um, some of these arguments uh, regarding polyamory. I don't want to use the word argument, but I use the word argument anyway. Just God's design for biblical marriage, specifically regarding polyamory. And um, so I'm really grateful for that. And he's written a lot of other things, including a blog. And he's a funny dude. He's a good follow on the old Facebook. You got got some good jokes, Branson.
2: You know... (laughs) I'm just trying to make it through like everybody else (laughs) (laughs) trying to have a sense of humor
1: are you like me where you're like I'm either laughing really hard or now I'm crying and now I'm just numb and now I'm eating a lot of food it's just insane okay now I wrote this before the whole world blew up and this was the question of the week for next week which is apropos because this is our life what is your favorite board game people Give us some new ones or maybe some internet games that you can play with people via the zoom this writes the zoom now uh actually i actually found some good ones that are really fun and funny and i play with my sister who literally lives down the road but we can't see each other because it's shelter in place anyway we'd love to hear from you guys what's your favorite board games so that we don't so that we can keep doing the metaphor if we're married and the body metaphor if we're not <laughs> married and living with our friends all right guys thanks so much for listening and for being a part of this podcast fam you really are part of this family and for all of us here oh wait i should probably say why matt's voice is gone before we end our children made noise so he just made like a bread truck and hauled his buns and yes that's how i'm ending this episode thank you matt for serving us so faithfully thank you steve as well and thanks to branson and everyone here at the Hole In My Heart Podcast. We will see you, Lord willing, next week.